0: I want to talk to you about the three responses to Christmas because it's like there's some things that have never changed. The three responses to Christmas. And I have to say, I love Christmas, and especially when I was a youngster. And I I look out and I see some young ones out there. But for me, man, it was so intense around this time. How many of you, I'm just curious, how many of you are excited that it's Christmas Eve, tomorrow's Christmas, could you raise your hand? Ah, see the kids' hands are going up. Here's the thing. I, I've been driving around and I've been thinking, what would it be like if someone like came from another planet? And by the way, if you're listening and you're young, there's no one on any other planets, okay? But if someone came from another planet on December 25th and they were like, you know, what is this all about? What is the world doing? Because it's a mixed bag, let's be honest. Because even driving, I saw Santa and then I saw the Savior And, uh, you know, you have fact, you have fiction, you have myth, you have Messiah. It's just, it's very easy to get the wires crossed, you know. I've told the story before of a 75-year-old couple, and they were celebrating their 75th wedding anniversary, and the husband said, honey, I just, this is in front of the whole family, I just want you to tell you, your love all these years has been tried and True. And she said, what did you say? Your love, honey, all these years, 75 years, your love has been tried and true. What did you say? Your love tried and true. She said, I'm tired of you too, she said, you know. It's like, oh my goodness, in front of everybody. Why am I saying this? Because it's like, man, what is it? Is it faith or is it fable? You know, we didn't actually raise our kids uh, talking about the, I'll I'll veil some of this because some of the kids, the the big guy in the sky, because that's not how we raise them, but... Uh, we have very smart grandchildren. Uh, we have a, f- 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 uh, a five-year-old. And I was on a FaceTime with him the other day. And he's in Florida. And he said, Papa, do you have a chimney? He said, I said, yeah, you have a chimney. You have a chimney. It's right, it's right there. Like, there's the chimney. And he said, well, we, we, we don't have a chimney. And uh, he said, you know, Santa, the big guy, comes down the chimney. And he was like, he said, Papa, when is he going to learn to come the front door? He said, you know, it's like trying to work it out. As I said, it's it's like a mixed bag. And and as a kid, as I, as, I, as I was saying, I mean, for me, it was just euphoric. And I think it's like a unique combination because if you take a child's imagination, which is really fertile, and then you couple it with a story about flying reindeer with a big man in the sky who's gonna bring you a lot of toys. You know, you put all of that together, it is explosive. And I can remember... You know, I grew up in Southern California, I, I would go outside, I remember this one time as a kid looking up, I'm thinking, oh my goodness gracious, there he is, there's Rudolph. And the nose is blinking, you know, little did I know, we're like, in a, like around LAX, you know, it's like, you know, the planes were like, I, I didn't put it together, um, but as it's been said, there's the four stages of Christmas, like you believe in Santa, you don't believe in Santa, then you are Santa, and then you look like Santa, right? all these things. Okay, let's get serious. What is Christmas? I've been thinking about it afresh. I want to put this point up on the screen. Christmas is a combination, all right, of unique components that resulted, I'm going to say this, this divine combustion of revealing of God's unstoppable and unfolding plan. You talk about a mouthful right there. They say, what are you talking about? Unique components coming together and it's like combustible. Not bringing chaos, but bringing order and healing, actually. Here's what I mean. Listen, the Bible tells us Jesus came at the right time in human history. It's like if you're new to the Bible, the Bible says he came in the fullness of times. Historically, here's what the world looked like prior to Jesus coming. You had the Babylonian Empire. So you had a few people controlling the masses. That's never good. I always want to call for an amen there, but I won't. Then you have the Medo-Persian Empire. Again, few controlling the masses, dark period. Grecian Empire, oh. I mean, that ended up like bringing defilement to Jerusalem, which of course, actually, this is Hanukkah as well. I mean, we celebrate Christmas, but it's during the time of Hanukkah, which was a rededication of the temple after it being defiled by the Syrian leader in the Grecian Empire, Okay. And when Jesus was born, here's what I mean by unique combinations. As I mentioned, there was Caesar Augustus, okay? He's identified, he's the first emperor identified as the son of God, the son of the divine. And it was a setup for the emperor as God to worship him as God. So it's a setup to actually worship man as God. Man as God, right? Like Bob Dylan has this one phrase in a lyric, Uh, What's to come has already been. What's to come has already been. You don't want to know where the world is headed. It's headed to his crazy esteem of a man. He's known as Antichrist. And Jesus, when he returns, is going to judge him. Evil will not prevail. But if you go back 2,000 years ago, on a micro level, Jesus comes when Augustus is the emperor setting up the empire to see the emperors as divine. And therefore, it's like if you don't give them your complete allegiance, you're marked for persecution and even death. And during Augustus, he, of course, announced the Pax Romana, the great, you know, time of peace. And, of course, we know what happened in the Roman Empire. It just died from within. Bigger picture. These are all these components. God identified a plan unfolding through Abraham that through him the entire world would be blessed. Uh, It would materialize through the line of David, King David. David, when he came to recognize this, he said, oh, he said, is this the Torah of mankind? In other words, that there's a God, he's revealed himself, and then he's gonna send his son, who's going to bring righteousness to planet Earth, first by transforming people from the inside out, then one day materializing on planet Earth. And he's like, man, is this the Torah of Adam? Not the Torah of Moses, but the, like the instruction, the revelation of Almighty God. And when you have Augustus here mentioned in chapter 2, look what, look what happens. It's like he calls for a census. And, and so now you have the whole world It's going to be counted for tax purposes. And you have this young couple in the northern part of Israel who's caught up in the gears of a secular movement, and now they're making their way south, outside of Jerusalem to a place called Bethlehem, the city of David. I want to show you a scripture here on the screens. Let's just go to that next frame if we could. Here's the prophecy. This is Bic. From Bethlehem, out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, who's going forth, or from old, from, can someone tell me the next word? Everlasting, actually, that term everlasting could be translated from the vanishing point or time out of mind. So in other words, what's gonna happen in Bethlehem, you're gonna have a great revelation. Okay, is it make-believe? Of course not. Myth? No. Of course, Socrates challenged the myths of the day. He went. it's like, you know, forget mythology. No, 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 we're talking about concrete reality. We're talking about a Savior born who lived in a real city, who walked on water, who raised the dead. This is not mythology. question is, who is Jesus? Oh, the one who has come from out of time, mind-like, everlasting. How many people have you ever met that were born in Bethlehem? I don't know if we've ever, I mean, I think there's a Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, but we're talking about Bethlehem, Israel. What the first Christmas tells us is that God's word is true. He made a promise. His plan is unfolding. It tells us we can trust the Bible. But listen to this. Just check this out, right? Unique components that kind of explode with divine revelation and change. It's like there's no one that compares to Jesus throughout history. H.G. Wells wrote, when I come to write history, I must give first place to that penniless teacher from Nazareth. It's like Jesus' life and his mo- the mosaic of his life speak cohesively that he is the Son of God, God the Son. So you have this couple coming to Bethlehem. That's prophecy, born in Bethlehem. But listen to this. Micah says Bethlehem of Euphrata. Euphrates? Like what are you talking about? Oh, Euphrates was an agricultural zone. The 4th century scholar Eusebius identified it where Migdal Eder resided. The Hebrew word Migdal means tower. Eder means flock. The Bible prophesied, and you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. You say, Greg, what are you saying right there? Let me explain. Okay, Euphrata is the agricultural zone. So it's not actually Bethlehem proper, the city itself. Remember, there's no room for Jesus and Mary in the end. So I believe actually that the prophecy is that he was born in a unique tower as is prophesied. Hebrew scholar Alfred Eldersheim identified that the shepherds actually overseeing this tower, and it was two-story. It was a tower for shepherds to be watching over their flocks. Their flocks were lambs being prepared for ceremonial use in Jerusalem. And I know it's like, you're like, what are you talking about? It's like, oh, well, let me just say, these are unique shepherds, and these are unique lambs. These are not just like ordinary, these, these are not just like, if I could say it this way, three schlaps out in the agricultural zone. And these are unique shepherds. And you know what they're used to? They're used to actually taking care of lambs without spot or blemish to later be sacrificed on Passover. And actually, when a lamb was born that was without spot or blemish, they would wrap the lamb in swaddling cloths and lay it in a manger. And actually, according to rabbinic tradition, when Passover came... And it's, I know that a lot of these terms are maybe like maybe just like going over some heads. I, I can understand totally why. But Passover is a historical day God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, which is a prophecy of a greater deliverance in the future. That's the same day Jesus gave his life on the cross. It's like, well, historically they would go to the agricultural town, region of Prada, and they would identify a Passover lamb, wrap it in swaddling clothes, carry it, actually, to the temple to be sacrificed on Passover. So, can you better understand? It's like when the Lord appears to these shepherds, He says, you will find a babe. You talk about a sign. I mean, you're used to seeing lambs wrapped in swaddling clothes, but you're going to see a human wrapped in swaddling cloths. Am I saying that word correctly? Lying in a manger. It's like, oh my goodness, you are kidding me. Now, that would be a unique sign, specifically if you were shepherds overseeing lambs for ceremonial use. Can I hear an amen to that? So many believe, therefore, the sign to the shepherds was a preview of prophecy of the ultimate fulfillment. When John first saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And look at this passage up in Isaiah. This is written hundreds of years prior to Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our shalom. Peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, where all sacrificial lambs were born, and died in Jerusalem, where all sacrificial lambs were killed. And it was then, suddenly, there was the angel multitude of heavenly hosts, just getting back to this combustion thing. I mean, that's how I'm thinking about it. These, oh my goodness, unique components coming together. Unique time in history. Prophecy, bringing the job. Uh, Bethlehem, you know, shepherds. All of this coming together, you have this divine revelation, this divine explosion with angels appearing, singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I love it. You know, our friend Joel Rosenberg, he's a New York Times best-selling author, he moved to Israel. It's a true story. I just read this article. He penned on this, right? So he's a Jewish believer in Jesus, but he's American. And then he moved to Israel, so he's an Israeli citizen. And he was really debating whether or not to, like, carry some of the traditions from the West to Israel. Would his Israeli friends get it and stuff? And so he had some, like, Israeli friends who were encouraging him, no, just do it, do it. So he would hold these parties And they would read Scripture. They would read Isaiah like 9, 6, and 7, that a child would be born, Emmanuel, you know, with us, and speaking of Messiah on the throne of his father David. And they read Micah 5 too, which identifies that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. One of his friends, Israeli friends, became like irritated. He said, are you saying, I'm quoting, that the Messiah absolutely has to be born in Bethlehem, Joel said, no, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the Hebrew prophet Micah, sent by God, is telling us that. And at this, his friend became more irate. I was born and raised in this land. I went to Israeli schools. I studied the Hebrew Bible in class year after year, and no one has ever pointed out this prophecy. No one has ever told us that the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. And then he pointed his finger at Joel's chest saying, Joel, you need to go to the education minister and yell at him and tell him, why have you kept this from us? Why aren't you telling us what our own Bible teaches about the Messiah? Christmas, it's like components, unique, coming together. You got this divine combustion that doesn't bring chaos, but brings order and healing. I love it. And listen, it wasn't just Jesus' birth that was uniquely divine. His whole life is divine. Christmas BC, before he became a man, prophecy, bunch of them. Jesus at birth, angels blowing away the learned doctors at 12 years of age, the rabbis, um, three years public ministry, walking on water, raising the dead. He goes to the cross on Passover. He resurrects. Ascends. He's been transforming lives ever since. Hey, you know the Jewish historian Josephus, who's the most respected first century historian in history. He said this of Jesus. He, Jesus, was the Messiah. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among him, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And listen, every time we write a letter, we're actually acknowledging Jesus' entrance to planet Earth because it identifies, of course, his birth. And notice verse 10, you guys. The message that the first Christmas began with was don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What a message. Because today... There's heightened anxiety. Do you sense it? Do you feel it? I asked Jonathan Hessen, who's the editor-in-chief of TV7 Israel News. This was when we were on our Israel trip, and he came and spoke to our group. You guys will remember when I asked him. This is my first question was, Jonathan, what what is the context of our times? And this is a guy that interfaces with a lot of world leaders, including Putin so he has a lot of context with all of it. I said, just curious, how do you see the context of our times? And his answer was, there's just, he said, there's a lot of noise, he said. There's a lot of distortion. I mean, just this last week, one headline reads Putin warns Russia's Satan 2 nuclear missile will soon be ready for combat. Can you believe I just said that? I mean, I, ho- hopefully it's just, and I believe it is. I don't know. It's just rhetoric and manipulation. But I can't even believe that such a headline even exists. And then there's increased lawlessness. I don't want to get in the weeds here. But um, I was speaking actually with a daughter of a, of a, of a father who was arrested uh, by, you know, by communist influences and thing and thrown into the gulag and things. And he looks, he's 84, and he looks at the West, and he's so concerned about the influence that he sees in the West because he sees dark influences going after our children, going after our children, right? And we live in a time where it's like, man, I mean, what is the meaning of things? It's almost like we're losing the meaning of meaning, um, it's like what Dorothy said, right? I talk, talk about it all the time. It's like, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. It's like such a weird time. The good news is the Savior has come. Listen, the Savior is the King. The Savior is the Lord. You know what it means? He's won the war, actually. In other words, he's conquered death, sin, breakdown, judgment, and he invites us to be in his kingdom. It's like someone doesn't have to be. God gives us a choice. I mean, this is, this is just a flat-out fact. He set before us life, death, blessings, and cursings. And he says, choose life. But getting back to that Dylan lyric, what's to come has already been. In other words, consider the context of the first coming of Jesus under a dark emperor. Didn't work then, and it won't work in the future when the stakes are only higher. Because Jesus is the Savior King, and he's coming again. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. And let me just say this. Look, I'm thinking about these unique combustible components, you know, that explode to something so beautiful. There's one thing, you guys, that hasn't changed, um, and that is the responses to Christmas. Because if you go back, and we don't have time to get into it, but it's Matthew chapter 2, you have wise men who came to Jerusalem, and they were inquiring about the king that was born. They were led by a unique star. Some people say it was an angel. I have no idea what the star was, but they came from the east. It doesn't say there were three wise men. It just they were three, You know there were three gifts given. Did I say three wise men? I don't know how many exactly there were, but they came to Jerusalem and they were inquiring about the king born of the Jews. And of course, when Herod heard of this, who really wasn't a Jew, by the way. He wasn't a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a plant of the Romans. And he found this to be a great threat. So he ends up asking the Sanhedrin, kind of the Congress Senate of the day, you know, where is the king going to be born? And they answer, Micah. They answer, Bethlehem. The question is, is like, man, why weren't those guys in Bethlehem worshiping the king? In other words, they knew the right answer, maybe even admired the idea of a king, of a savior, but didn't step into it. What does it say? It speaks of the fact that one response to the birth and life and death and resurrection and promise of Jesus to return is simply indifference. The people are distracted and desensitized. You don't want to find yourself inoculated to the truth. You know what the idea of inoculation is? You get a little, get a little of the virus and your body builds up immunity against it, right? So it's like the idea is that you get a little bit of the truth, you hear it, but you don't allow it to take over your body and mind in its full capacity and you build up a resistance against it. You don't want to find yourself that. That's a very dangerous place. Then there's persecution. That's Herod. He actually sought to murder Jesus. And today Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. And you don't have to be like this mini little antichrist with horns on your head to be in opposition to Jesus. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. And there's no middle ground. So in other words, like if, I, if I'm indifferent to Jesus, or maybe even take the position like, oh, I admire him and I think he's influential, I say some positive things, but I don't take it to the next step, which is what we see with these wise men. And that is they came not only giving gifts to Jesus, and it was gold speaking of his divinity, or his kingliness, excuse me. There was frankincense that many people see speaks of his divinity, myrrh, was actually used to kind of as an embalming, part of the embalming process that speaks of perhaps his death and his humanity. It's like these gifts spoke of something. They came and they honored Jesus, but it wasn't just their gifts and maybe what those gifts meant. They ended up bowing to him, and that's the difference. When you bow to Christ, in other words, when your allegiance in your life is right with truth, and that is who Jesus is, something wonderful takes place. Let me tell you, deep inside, it's not Christmas we're really longing for. It's Jesus Christ. It's not like, okay, we'll just marry men. No, it's actually, deep down, it's the Messiah. You know, it's not like presents. I love presents and stuff. And if you want to give me a present, it's not too late. But, oh, sorry, I just worked that in. No, just kidding. No, so dumb. Um, but, Presence are fantastic, but we're really longing for his presence, right? C.S. Lewis said God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other, and that's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about faith God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So I just want to end with this. Seriously, like what is your response to Jesus? Because it's either going to be one of indifference. It could be one of persecution, not avert, but it's just like, well, I'm not for him, to be frank with you. Well, Jesus said you're either for me or against me. It's a dangerous place to be. You want to be like these wise men who recognized his divinity, recognized that he's the king, recognized he gave his life on the cross to bear our sins, bridge the gap between God and man. And then they bowed, they worshiped. And when you bow to Jesus the king, and I'm just going to end with this, there's this divine combustion of forgiveness and security and right relationship with God. So I'm going to ask, listen, we're not done yet, but I'm going to ask Isaac to come up, and I just want us to pray. Pray with me at this time. Lord, Lord, thank you for you. And here we are thinking of Christmas, of course, and so much of it has to do with gifts. And we recognize there's not a greater gift than you, Lord. And you have given yourself. And you have said, you stand at the door and knock, and if anyone would hear your voice and open the door. You would come in. And you, coming into our life, brings forgiveness, hope beyond the grave, filling the empty spaces within. You said, Lord, if any man thirsts, speaking of the deep thirst, deep in all of us, really, that a God-shaped hole. If any man thirsts, come to me. And that you would give us what we need, that our lives would be rightly filled as you have intended for us. And I just am thinking, Lord, of, of someone here maybe hearing this for the first time or hearing bits and pieces throughout their life, but maybe maybe it's making more sense than ever before. And I just pray no one would leave indifferent, no one would leave, of course, in a place that is against you, but they, like the wise men, would bow to the king. Listen, just while our heads are bowed our eyes are closed, let me share something with you. Heaven. Heaven is more than just life beyond the grave. You know, for someone to say, well, I believe, I believe that uh, you know, we live after we die. Well, the Bible says that's true. We we live after we die. And it's either outside of God's presence. Is there a place of help? Yeah. I mean there is. Outside, where there's no God of God's love and relationship. Uh I'm just going to stop right there. But the Bible says there's a hell. But then there's a heaven. Heaven is a kingdom. And Jesus is the king of this kingdom. And in order to have this hope of heaven, one must have relationship with the king who has come. You say, well, Greg, how does that take place? Recognize what he's done for you. We've been talking about he died on the cross it could be said with one hand he reached up, he took the hand of the Father, and with the other he reaches out to every human being. He's reaching out to you. Have you taken his hand? You say, well, what does that look like? Um, Jesus said, unless we repent, we'll perish. Repentance carries the idea of making a U-turn in life. So I'm moving in one direction, but I need to do an about face. Has there ever been a time in your life you formally made that you turn. You've turned around. Jesus said, there's a broad way that leads to destruction, and many go that way. And then he said, there's a narrow way that leads to eternal life. Few be that find it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except it be through me. And then receive him. He really is just a prayer away. The Bible says those who call upon the Lord shall be saved so it's like how do you open the door well you recognize what he's done for you he died he resurrected and he's saying now turn to me work with me here and receive me as savior lord and if you would like to do that i would love to lead you in a word of prayer to do just that because the bible says those who call upon the lord shall be saved and listen you can settle your eternal destiny on a drop of a dime it's true because when you, listen, when you combine belief with the truth of who Jesus is, man, you will be blessed. You'll be more than blessed. You'll be brought in a right relationship with the Father who loves you and sent his Son that you might have relationship with him. So look, look whether you're um, 12 years of age or 80 years of age or anywhere in between, you're not too young, you're not too old to open your heart to him. And I just pray, look, not only admire Jesus, but like the wise men, bow. That makes the difference. In other words, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, the King, the Savior King. If you would like to pray to receive Christ, pray with me now. And let's settle this. And if you mean it, the Lord will honor it. Pray with me. And church family, if you'd like to pray along, that'd be great. Pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I call upon you now to be my Savior, Lord. Thank you for dying for me, resurrecting from the dead. I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a great Savior. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, come into my life. Make me your child. Fill the empty spaces with it. And teach me to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for coming into my life, making me your child, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.